Okay, so what we're trying to do is just stimulate as a group the habit, the daily habit of being in the scriptures. And uh, one thing in particular, um, that's, it's helpful. I've heard Quig say a million times. It's helpful. To, you know the three things that Quig always says is helpful for your Bible reading? How does he go? Say it again. Like a time and a place. And then one more thing. A, a system or something like that. A time, a place, and a system, right? And so the time and the place is kind of up to you. Figure out a time and a place. But uh, time and a place and a system, what I'm suggesting is you can read through the New Testament, and if you'd make a decision and just commit, I'm going to read five pages a day, full stop. Or I'm going to read ten pages a day, right? If you do five pages a day, it'll take you uh, 50 days. It's not that long. If you do ten pages a day, it'll take you 25 days. And I don't know, people probably vary on this, but if I'm going to do something, I hate, I don't, I like to decide once. So if I decide I'm going to read it, you know, like five pages a day, then I don't ask the question on any given day. I just decided, yes, I'm going to do that, so this, I will do that. I think if, I'd, if I had to decide every day if I'm going to do the thing that I mean to do, then I'm going to decide not to a lot of the time, and that's going to screw everything up. So just decide once. I guess that's what's going to happen. And I'm not going to bed until I've accomplished the thing that I committed to do, right? So just, it's an easier way to live. So make a decision, what it is, five, day, five pages a day or ten pages a day or whatever you want to do, and then just do it. And then the way that I think is helpful to read the New Testament is roughly in this order. I would read uh, Luke, Acts, Romans as your foundation. Luke gives you one of the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life. Acts is the history of the church. And then Romans is kind of the most meaty theological foundation. So Luke, Acts, Romans. We're having a harder time. I'm having a harder time with you being noisy. So you need to have a harder time with you being noisy and then make less noise, okay? So, So much better. Luke, Acts, Romans, okay? And then anything you want. Just read a bunch of letters. It's like, I don't care whatever you do. We, we have done, we've done First and Second Corinthians and James and Philippians. Anything else? I forget. Is that what we've done so far? Maybe something else, right? And then when you've done a bunch and you've done a batch of letters, then read another gospel. And then do a batch of letters, read another gospel, read a batch of letters, and save Hebrews and Revelation to the end because they're just so complicated. So do, those, do those at the very end. And so what we're going to do today is First Peter, and then we're going, to, we're going to consider that the first block, and next week we're going to do Matthew. So we'll be back to like another gospel, Matthew, and then a bunch of letters, and then we'll do either Luke or, or I mean, uh, Mark or John and a bunch of letters. And the order kind of doesn't really matter, but Luke, Acts, Romans, bunch of letters, then a gospel, a bunch of letters, gospel, and with Hebrews and Revelation. Um, and the way that I just keep track of it is just really simple. I just have a pencil, and I put a check mark in my table of contents on the Bible, um, and I do, though I almost always use this. I use an iPad with a Bible software called Accordance, which I love for a million different reasons. When I'm doing like a, you know, a through the Bible kind of thing, that's harder to do here. I use a paper Bible for that because it's just so much more natural to have a bookmark. You just put the ribbon in there and then I know where I am. And so I'd, I would suggest you get a paper Bible. You can write on the table of contents. You uh, just bookmark the thing five or ten pages a day and just bang through it. And I just think you'd be amazed and how much you can lay down and the, and the richness that that will bring into your life, especially layer by layer by layer, the fifth time through, the twelfth time through, the thirtieth time through. It's amazing what God will do in your life over years, okay? So this week we're going to look at First Peter, and as we often do, I'd love to hear what you guys already know about First Peter. Peter wrote two letters, well, first of all, anything you know about who Peter is, about his letters, Nicholas, Anything you want. Um, what do you guys know? First Peter. Anything? 
If you were, had to stand up and talk about First Peter, what would you say? Fisherman. Who is it? What? What? Her- okay, so Peter himself was a fisherman. Okay, yes. Oh. Fisher of men. He's a fisherman and a fisher of men. Okay, let me pick on the fisherman comment first, though. Um, sometimes, so there's, sometimes people will approach the scriptures, and then uh, with either faith or with doubt, with skepticism, and sometimes people have questioned whether or not Peter wrote this letter and whether or not Peter wrote the other letter that bears his name, Second Peter. Have you guys, are you familiar with that? That sometimes people will be like, well, you know, they say Peter wrote it, but I don't know that he really did. Or somebody thinks that Paul wrote this, but I don't know that he really did. Are you familiar with that accusation? This is definitely a thing. Take a look. I'll show you this. Look at First Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Sometimes people will do this analysis of the vocabulary, and you know, right, and it's, it's almost embarrassing, but you know that certain people, well, every person has like idiosyncratic vocabulary. Do you know what I mean? Like there's certain phrases that you always heard your dad use or there's certain things or the ways that your mom would tend to frame things, right? And so people will do the analysis on that and there's sometimes a question, is Peter, who was just a fisherman, he's this uneducated guy, is he likely to have written this letter? And the answer is yes. However, look at 1 Peter 5.12. It says this, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. What that means is just kind of like we saw that 1 Corinthians was written by Paul and somebody else. Do you remember who else? Who wrote 1 Corinthians? It was the guy that showed up in Acts 18. He had a funny name. The dude from the synagogue. His name was Sosthenes. Sosthenes was a co-author of 1 Corinthians. Silas, what, what, what he's saying here is, with the help of Silas, I've written you briefly. So Silas is a co-author. So when we find things that you might, the people have said, like, well, maybe Peter didn't really write this. Maybe there, it seemed like they were, it, it bears somebody else's fingerprints. My answer to that is, no, Peter did write it, but he didn't write it alone. And so it's probably that Silas's vocabulary or Silas's personality is sneaking into this letter as well, which just helps us understand why some of the criticisms aren't all that founded, okay? But so, yeah, a common fisherman who became a fisher of men, wrote this letter. Okay, Bob? Along those lines, uh, in Acts 4, where uh, John and Peter are talking together, that they, they recognized that they were common, uneducated men, but they had been with Jesus. That, yes. that alone was enough to kind of push over the... Yeah, they punch above their weight, number one, because of the time they spent with Jesus. And then, number two, though the, the pastor doesn't say that, yes, because the, the Spirit of God is alive in them. So it is really true that you are, we are getting more than might be expected here. But that is not an argument for the inauthenticity of it, but rather for the supernatural origin behind it. Really Peter's personality, really Peter's insights, and some of Silas's, empowered by the Holy Spirit as these men walked with Jesus. Okay, good. First Peter, anything else you want to throw in kind of as we come out of the gate? What it's about, Chris? Uh, suffering for the huge, 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 huge. Suffering is a massive theme. In fact, we'll go ahead and just do that. So if you flip over your page, I, just, I listed for you as many places as I could find. Just listen to some of these. This permeates the letter, okay? It says in this, I'll just give you a, you could just skim through it. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong. Like being accused is a particularly exquisite form of suffering. I hate 
being accused, falsely accused. I don't like being accused when I'm guilty either. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God, right? If you can read through this, loads and loads and loads of language about suffering. It just, I mean, look at chapter one, chapter two, chapter two, three, four, four, five. I mean, the whole letter is marked by suffering, right? And so we might, we might come back and look a little bit more at that. And we need to understand why is suffering such a theme to the letter. We'll see that when we get a little bit more insight. So excellent. First Peter, you got anything? Bob? Uh, she said that there were, she said there were two anchors, gratitude and hope. Oh, oh, the anchors of, yes, yeah, anchor of hope. Okay, so what that, what Bob is talking about there is, generally speaking, we have in life two, I, I, I'll often kind of picture it like a, you got a telephone pole, and it's got these two wires that come down to keep it tight, whatever you call those, guy wires or guide wires, whatever those are called. Like, so... If you, are, if you are the telephone pole, then what you need in your life, what you hopefully have in your life, is one anchor. Let's see, from your perspective, this is the past. You have one anchor into the past that we call gratitude, and then one anchor into the future that we call hope. Okay? So as you stand here, you are looking backward, grateful for the good things that God has done, and you are looking forward, anticipating the good things that God will do. And you absolutely need both of these things in your life. But the stronger of the two, by a factor of a thousand, is hope. In fact, the chief value of gratitude is that our gratitude, our appreciation, our experience of God's goodness in the past is what slings us forward and giving us courage to hope that he might be good to me tomorrow or in a hundred years or in a million years, right? And so Peter is deeply interested in hope. This letter has hope. We'll, we'll see this we'll, as we get into it a little bit. Hope is a major theme, which, which pairs nicely with suffering, right? When you are, and so you got, you're grateful for the past, you're hopeful for the future, but right now in the present moment, everything's terrible, right? That, that's kind of the theme of this letter. Right now, you are suffering. But don't forget, the God who has been good to you will be good to you yet. And so this, so you want to have that in a sense. Now, not, sometimes the present moment is quite lovely, okay? But Peter is writing to a people whose present moment is marked by suffering and he's helping them look forward in hope to what a good God will do again and do in greater abundance, okay? Major kind of, arc, if, if you read through Peter, you will see all of that, that, uh, that philosophy being played out. So excellent, okay. Anything else before, on Peter before I can kind of give you my lowdown on it? Else want to play? No, no, no. Okay. Do you remember we did teach? I te- we te- we did a whole thing on this letter. I don't know. When did we do that? A year ago? How was it? Longer ago? A couple years ago? Time all blurs, right? But we did a first Peter. Do you? Does anybody remember what what is the central verse of this book? The whole arc, everything before it is leading up to this. Everything after is an explanation of it. What's the central passage in First Peter? Say it louder. You're an alien. You are freaks. That's it. You're aliens, you're strangers. It's the one I put in the center of that box where it says this. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That is what 1 Peter is about. The whole book, everything else is going to kind of, is going to be an outgrowth from that 
what is that, two verses, okay? So what does it mean when he says you are aliens and strangers? Do you remember this part? What do we mean by that? What is the words behind those words? Um, I mean, I think about the, the concept of citizenship, like we belong to the kingdom of God. Okay. Yes. And that under his kingdom, we live lives that look differently than the world around us. We're to be ambassadors in that. That's great. Okay, so Nick, in case you couldn't hear Nick in the back, he's using this, this is concept of citizenship, that we really are ultimately citizens of a different kingdom, that Jesus is our king, but we live right here. And though Jesus is king right here, he said all authority in heaven and earth, which includes Roanoke, has been given to me, includes the United States, has been given to me. Nevertheless, there's, there are other competing kingdoms, and we dwell among them. And if we are to understand our role as aliens, foreigners, strangers, this world is not my home, that kind of a framework, well, then we got to think, well, what do you do when you, when you move to a foreign country? Well, you are, the word you used was, we're ambassadors, right? We're not, we're not just here to like throw sand in the gears. We're here to bring a blessing to this world. But we are not, it, should be, it shouldn't be surprising if we find it uncomfortable, right? Because their habits are not our habits. Their mode of being is not our mode of being. And we look weird to them even as they look weird to us, right? That is what this letter is about. And the reason that we taught it here a year or two, whenever it was, ago, is because I think 1 Peter is increasingly the most relevant letter in the New Testament for us right now, right? Because you feel it, right? We're weirder than we were five, even if we don't move, if we don't, we don't change a bit, you are stranger than you were five years ago. And you are stranger than you were 25 years ago. And a decade hence, you all are going to be the biggest bunch of freaks, right? <laughs> Do you know this? Do you feel this? Okay, this is a letter written to a piece. So, you know, reading this, reading this letter at different times in history would have felt strange for different reasons. If you were a Christian living in the United States in 1950 and you believed what God believes about racial relationships, you would have been a freak. Because American, American culture and American Christianity. How about go back, go back 100 years, 1850, and you're a Christian living in that world, and you were just faithful to the biblical view of race relations, you would have been a freak. Problem is, a lot of times, Christians just trim our sails to the culture. We don't seem that way. We just go along. It's just easier to go along, right? And at one point in time in American history, it was much easier to be a Christian who agreed with racial segregation or with the infliction of slavery because that's what everybody's doing. It's just fine. Don't make a big deal about it as long as you're white anyway, right? And to be a biblically authentic Christian in that moment regarding those issues would have been excruciatingly difficult and so many would not have done it. Today, same thing. It's just a different issue, right? There are different questions, different issues, less about slavery, more about sexuality, that it's just easy. Just go along. Just shut up. And just say what they want you to say. Do what they want you to do. And in that era and in this era, we experience that if we are going to be authentically Christian, then we're going to look stranger and stranger and stranger. Right? That is what this whole letter is about. So while we are experiencing it right now because culture change is so rapid, it's just happening so quickly, and if you don't go with the river, you're going to just be, you're going to be such a strange person. We remember when we had more cultural power and it was, you know, we didn't have to be weird. We could just kind of call the shots. This letter is written to the people in this room that are like, wow, everything is changing so fast, and I don't think I like some of these changes. Some of these, maybe some things that are good, because there are some things that are good. Nothing gets all worse. Things get better and worse at the same time, but a lot of the worse is really worse and really weird. This letter is for you. 
to say, you're going to suffer because it's not that fun to be weird. However, here's the thing. The irony is if you're a Christian, it's not that weird to be weird. Christians are weird. Just suck it up. Like that was the deal when you joined the club. Like we, Jesus was thought to be strange. They're going to think you're strange. Don't freak out about it. That's what this letter is largely about. Make sense? And then what he does with that, once he makes his case, hey, you're aliens, you're strangers, then he just kind of specifies it. Hey, you're going to be strange husbands. You're going to be really weird wives. You're going to be very uncommon employees. You're going to be citizens that don't make sense to a lot of people. And in fact, he's got this great line in here. Look at this. He says, uh, dun, dun, dun. look at the below this line here I've got. It says, they think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you, right? That's what it means to be strange. It's not just that you feel strange, but that they think you're strange. And they say, just, get, just do what you're supposed to do. Just follow the rules. And you're experiencing this. And you're, I have a friend who works someplace here in Roanoke. I will not name her place of work, but uh, the culture of her employment culture of where she works is uh, very far down kind of the sexual transformation that we've seen in the last 15 or 20 years in this country, right? Um, very, very high percentage of her, of her co-workers just believe things that are in violation of the Christian sexual ethic that I would say are in violation of the nature of reality. And she works there, and she's trying to make it work. God bless her, right? She wants to be there. She wants to love her coworkers. She wants to be gracious and kind. She understands the gospel. She knows what's at stake. And she's doing her best to try to just be a faithful Christian in this place. And maybe she'll be able to do it. But I would say the day is coming when they're just not going to put up with her anymore, right? Because it's just hard. And, and they think it's, they already think it's strange that she will not, and I quote, plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they, they have not yet, and maybe they won't, but I fear the day is coming when they will heap abuse on her, and it's going to become really, really difficult, right? Some of you perhaps work in a place where you know that exact phenomena. This is the centrality of the book of 1 Peter, okay? Comments on that, questions about any of that so far? I got more, but I want to give you guys a chance to jump in if you want. Yes, yes, yes? Okay, now take a look here along that bottom row where I have, they think it's strange. Look at else what he says. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. In 3.15 he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. What I want you to see here, normally I put everything in order, you know, two, three, four, five. I reverse the order here of those last two because there's something going on in 3.15 that I think is really important for us to grapple with um, and is not broadly known. Is 3.15 a familiar verse to you guys? You've heard this? Okay. What's, what's the problem with this verse? Okay, listen to it again. He says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. What's the problem with that? Yeah, you want to take a stab? Um, you always have an answer. Okay, you don't always have an answer. You're, not made, you're maybe not ready to answer that question. And so maybe we got to think ahead of time. Be like, okay, what would I say if somebody asked me that question? Okay, and that's an excellent, we want to be ready to answer that question. Very good. Eric? It also suggests that we should wait and not necessarily go out the last answer. Oh. 
Yeah, so it rules the sense of, the, the, it may have a sense of passivity to you that you're not, you know, you're waiting for them to come to you. Okay. Yes, Kelly? Wish more people would ask. That's what I'm thinking right there. I wish more people would ask. Okay. And this kind of dovetails, this is all three of your answers here. Like, when it says, always be ready, when people come up to you and say, explain to me the reason for the hope that you have. How many of you have ever in your entire life had someone come to you and say, excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but could you please explain to me the reason for the hope that you have? Okay? Now, that feels so, it's like, if somebody asked me that, I would like to be ready. I would like to have an, a ready answer, but I don't want to just wait for that because it may be a long time and I don't want to be passive forever, right? I mean, you could wait 45 years and have nobody say, Stephen, dude, I mean, come on, explain this to me. What, what gives, okay? Here's the thing. Peter thinks that his audience is not going to have to wait that long because there's something happening in their lives. Here's the deal. This idea that people come to you and say, what gives? Explain it to me. What's going on? Necessarily presumes that you as a Christian are going to live in a cauldron of difficulty. But while you are in that cauldron of difficulty... While people think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, while people are heaping abuse on you, this, number one, it's happening, which presumes that you're not just going with the flow. The world is all going all crazy in whatever category, whatever decade, whatever century, whatever continent, there's always something going off the rails. And whichever one you find yourself in, you are going to say, I'm going to be authentically Christian here. When the world's going insane about sexuality, I'm going to not. When the world's going insane about racism, I'm going to not. When the world's going insane in economic categories, I'm going to not. Whatever it is, you are just doing it right, which is going to look wrong to the world around you. Okay, That is step one. If anybody's going to ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have, first thing, you've got to be a weirdo. You're different. You're not just flowing down the river with everybody else. Second thing, though, and this is crazy, is while you're doing that and they heap abuse on you, you're super sweet about it. You're not fighting back. You're not mean. People, under, people get, when people are like, why are you so mean to people when they're mean to you? People, nobody asks that question because everybody knows why you're mean to people that are mean to you. They're mean to people that are mean to you. There's nothing weird about that. But if you will, number one, stand still when the world is going insane, you're going to do what the scriptures call you to do. You're going to live your life in light of reality. You're going to be a truthful person. And then when they heap abuse on you for it, and you don't just start punching people back, but you are gracious, you are kind. You remember Stephen, who as he was being stoned to death, quoted Jesus, who said, do not hold this against them, before the last rock smashed in his temple. If you will be like Stephen, who was like Jesus, if you will be like Peter, if you will be like Paul, who are all like Jesus, then somebody is going to say, all right, what... Like, explain you to me. Like, what do you know that I watch the way the people in this office treat you? And they just heap abuse on you. And then I watch you day after day do your job with excellence, respond to people with kindness. You never capitulate to the demands of the crowd. And that used to drive me insane because I think you're wrong. But now I've come to wonder, what do you know that I don't know? Explain to me the reason for the hope that you have. That is what Peter is talking about. So number one, we don't, Go down the road of falseness that we swim in right now. One of those things right now today is about language, right? It's about pronouns. It's about making assertions. We are compelled to make false speech. 
To be like Peter, you'd say, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. I'm just not going to ever say false things. But when you hate me for it, I'm going to be the most kind, the most patient, the hardest working, the best member of the team until you finally ask me what gives. Okay, that is what Peter is about. In our culture, in our moment, largely sexuality. Maybe in the subculture that you're in, it's about economics. Maybe in the subculture that you're in, there's some other thing that authentic Christianity is at odds with prevailing culture. Stay at odds with prevailing culture, but be really, really nice about it. We are to be a people of truth and a people of grace. That is what Peter is advocating for, and that is the thing that nobody gets. That is the thing that will spawn the question that Peter is trying to get us to, to provoke. Stuart? The undercurrent of the whole thing is the fact that you're still there, right? The temptation to just trade into your own echo chamber. Yes. Yeah, let's just hack around with just these people. I think there's a whole lot of that now that's making the, the levels go higher and higher. Yeah. We're retreating into our little corner. Yes. And we're not doing what this young lady is that you know, staying in the culture to the point where you can, they can act. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And of course we retreat to, I mean, like, under a normal circumstance, you would just retreat to a place of safety. That's a very reasonable thing to do. And yet we are, and there are seasons. For, that's why we come to here. This should be, you come here and it's like, ah, oh, catch your breath. Be restored. Be healed. Be among a people that love you and that, where there's safety and well-being. But then let's go back outside and let's engage with people. But let's be bewilderingly gracious and incomprehensibly truthful at the same time until they just don't know what to do with us, right? You can't do that if you're not engaging with, with people. For sure, for sure. Okay? That, you guys, that, if you read through Peter, what you're going to find is that concept just permeates the whole book. That's what he's writing about. And they say, what about, what if, you're married, what if your husband is a loser? Same thing. That's what, she, that's what he's going to say. And Peter, I just watched some of the wives' eyes glance toward their husbands. I don't know what that means. I just saw, like, the darting of the eyes. That's weird. Okay? Right? So, we want to be people that are just like weird husbands and weird wives and weird colleagues and weird co-workers. You're aliens, you're strangers. Don't be surprised. This is not, it's not weird to be weird if you're in this particular community. Okay? So far, so good? Yes, please. What do you say, I've personally not been told this, but other people, other Christians I've not had, you're just being judgmental. Yeah, well... Somebody's living, or you won't do what they're doing. Yeah. So there's a there's a couple of possibilities. The first possibility is, of course, that we are being judgmental, right, in a bad way, right. So we are Christians are not immune from the ability to look down our noses at people that are different than us, right. And so sometimes when they accuse us of doing wrong, it's because we're doing wrong, and we need to be humble. We need to be apologetic. We need to recognize. That we are, uh, there's, no, there's no sense in which like, I am like above the fray in all these things, right? I'm, I'm just as snooty and self-pleased as anybody, right? So I gotta, we've got to correct for that and be mindful of that. And maybe we make an apology, right? But sometimes there is a place where we are supposed to be discerning. We're supposed to know right from wrong. The question becomes, when, do I, when I know right from wrong, um, does it mean that you have to live your life the way that I want you to live my life? Right? And I think the answer to that is no. Like, I might not choose to do heroin, right? Um, and, I, and while I think intellectually that you probably shouldn't either, 
it doesn't follow from that that I have the authority to tell you what you can do and knock things out of your hands, right? And if I see you failing in some way, you're doing something that I'm like, that's destructive and that's dumb and that's going to lead to a negative end for you and for others, that may all be true, but it is not, doesn't necessarily follow that it's my job to walk around telling you that any more than I would appreciate you noticing my failures and just nailing me every time I do something stupid, right? So I think part of it, part of the problem with when we're accused of being judgmental is that we are. Man, we just got to own that and apologize and be humble. Part of the problem is a boundary thing. I need to know where I stop and where you begin, right? And so when I, you know, I, I, when I, I alluded to pronouns, of course, that's an allusion to the whole transgender movement. And the reality is that if, if you yourself, you want, you appear by all evidence available to me to be a woman, all right? So we're just going to go with that assumption, okay? If you were to tell me that you are male, it would not be my obligation to correct you and to tell you that you're wrong, okay? If you want to pretend to be male, like, you know, live your life, knock yourself out. What's that to me, okay? And so I think that we should have an orientation towards people that are doing things that we disagree with. I don't need to correct everything I see in the whole world around me that's constantly wrong. Where I have a problem with that is when you then compel me to acknowledge that you are male, well, that's where it's like now everything has changed because now you're compelling me to do something. So nobody in the world is ever going to be successful in compelling me to say false things. I'm just not doing it. You can do whatever else you want, but I'm not going to do that. But it doesn't mean that I have to say every true thing that comes into my mind at every time. You feel the difference? So, so I, think that, I think that Jesus was remarkable. He had this brilliant capacity to be neither condemning nor condoning. And that's a very narrow little peak of a mountaintop. And we tend to fall into, I, I must condemn it because I have a biblical obligation to call sin, sin every time I see it. Like, ooh, I'm not sure that you do. Or I must condone it and enter into the falsehood. I don't know. Jesus had some magical capacity to stay right at that peak. And I think we would do better to try to be like, well, it's fine. Like, people live their lives and they're not accountable to me. If you ask me a question, well, now you own the answer because I'm going to tell you what I think. But I don't need to be, I don't need to walk around judging everything like I'm better than everybody else. And it would be really embarrassing to me if somebody walked around with a highlight reel of all my own failings, right? And I'm grateful that so far that has not yet made the internet, right? You know? So I'd say, can you find that spot where you're neither condemning nor condoning, that you don't say false things, but you don't have to say every single true thing that ever occurs to you, you know? Does that make sense? So that might give you a little bit of category on that, but it's going to be a difficult thing. They will think it's strange when we don't plunge with them in the same flood of dissipation. Okay, so when you read through 1 Peter, watch the aliens and strangers, watch how it plays out in everything that's going on. Um, there's other things that he does there, but that's the absolute central line that runs through the letter. Good enough? Okay, a couple other things. Yes, please. So in aliens and strangers, yep. it says you should live in harmony how come we have war oh because we don't because people don't obey that right now okay but there's a okay that's that's a secondary question too so what what peter is telling us we ought to do is not the same thing as what people actually do not only do the non-christians not prescribed to what peter is has you know laid out for not don't obey what Peter's laid out but Christians don't obey what Peter has laid out right so there's that but when you jump to the war category I, I think maybe it's just worth making a quick note that 
war is not an act of private individuals. That's, a, that's an action of a state. And, God, and, and nations, when I say state, I mean nations, countries, function under different rules than individuals do. God has instituted a church comprised up of people who must follow his rules, and he's instituted states. He has given nations the authority to restrict, limp, to restrict evil through the use of force. So when a, when, a, when a country goes to war, they are living, I mean, possibly. I mean, could, there's all kinds of wicked, evil, unjust wars. But God has granted to nations an ability to defend their borders, to protect themselves from enemies. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, that a government has to follow the rules of First Peter because it's written to individuals, not to countries. That's a whole bigger conversation, but that's a short, tight answer to that. But there's all kind of, we don't need to go to war to have people sin, right? We can, we can be selfish. We can go to war you know, within our office in ways that are grossly in violation of First Peter and that we're, that we're culpable of, right? So he's writing to correct that. Okay, let's keep going. So Peter's telling us, you're weird, don't be weird. And then he anchors this, okay? When we talk about the hope, a major theme of Peter's letter is the return of Christ. And I think I've, I think I've told you this story once before, maybe at some point, but there's a, there's a subset of Christians who are called preterists. And preterists basically, among other things, they think that Jesus' return has either already happened or is really not going not to be that big of a deal, that for the most part, all the good stuff of the return has already happened. And it's completely insane, and it's not true, but for about 36 hours, I was reading their stuff and thinking, what if that were true? And I fell into this morbid depression. Because, you guys, what, Peter is, what, what Peter's doing here is he's writing to people that are suffering. He's calling them, just take the hit. Be weird. It's going to be hard. And then he's offering them hope, what he calls earlier this living hope. And the, do you know what the living hope is? Like, what is the good stuff? What is this line that runs down from the top of your telephone pole down to the line? Do you know what that hope is? Is the return of Christ. It's, I've said this before. It's the three R's. What are the three R's of this future hope? Remember them? The return of Christ, Harrison. Our resurrection from the dead. And the restoration of all things, okay? And it is all, the, and, but the, of the three, the big one is Jesus' return. And so Peter, when he's writing to people that are suffering, and he's trying to console them, he's trying to keep them in the game, take the hit, be weird, don't give up, and don't be nasty when you stay in the game. What's going to enable you to do that is fix your eyes on the return of Christ. He's coming back. He's coming. I promise you he's coming back. And so he says it over and over again. Look at what he says. There's an inheritance. And as I was reading this yesterday, I missed a couple. And I was going to come into the office and print these, but I didn't. So, sorry. But there's even more. You'll find them. It's a game, actually. So add these when you read through it. But there's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That's his language. He can talk about being revealed. That's why, like, the book Revelation is about a revealing. Finally it's uncovered. Finally that which was hidden is seen. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Prepare your minds for actions. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Listen to that phrase. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. The reason that you are setting your hope fully on the grace given you when Christ is revealed is because this present moment is painful. 
It's no fun when they heap abuse on you. It's no fun to be thought a stranger. It's no fun to lose your job because you refuse to enter into the compulsory false speech. It's no fun to lose friends because they think that you are fill in the blank. And in those moments, Peter says, yeah, I know, that's going to be rough. So set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. He's going to say, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Like, why? So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. He talks again about the glory to be revealed when the chief shepherd appears. And I think that one of the things that just adds so much health and vitality to the Christian life is a deep awareness, a moment-by-moment anticipation of a longing for the day that he is revealed. He is coming. Maybe this year. Maybe this month. I don't know when, but he's coming. And if our hope is there, then we can endure whatever this particular moment brings us. Chad? Yeah, the return of Christ which is like the center of it all, the resurrection from the dead, by which I mean your resurrection, and the restoration of all things. Next week, so if you guys were already in church this morning, you heard Sloop, Sloop had the first half of 1 Corinthians 15. Next week, I will have the second half of 1 Corinthians 15, which is about not Jesus' resurrection, but about your resurrection. So we'll, we'll explore that a little bit more. Our great hope is that we will be, this body will be raised from the dead when he returns and restores all things. Cool? Okay. So there's a couple more, and I forget exactly where they are, but when you read through it, just look for, fill in your document. The next version of this that I print will have, I'll correct it, probably. Um, But you want to watch for those. Okay. Return shows up everywhere. Um, How much time do I have? Oh, gosh. Okay. Go to the back. Okay. Suffering. Chris hits suffering. There's lots of good stuff on suffering. One thing I'll mention quickly about suffering is that First Peter is where we hit one of our chair passages. I just want to highlight it for you on atonement theory. So atonement theory, when Jesus died on the cross, we're trying to make sense. What happened there, right? And there's a whole bunch of things that are happening there. We've talked about other things in Romans, um, that the central claim of the cross, of what he's doing, is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. Penalty. Substitute. Atonement. He was being penalized so that Lisa wouldn't be penalized. It was penal, substitutionary, atonement. That happened, right? But there's other things going on. He was also defeating Satan. Hmm, Colossians is probably your best place to go. Colossians 1, maybe, would be uh, Colossians 2. Colossians 1 or 2 is going to be your, probably your central claim to see the defeat of Satan, that what he was doing on the cross was crushing the serpent's head, okay? But there's a third point to that triangle that I think we want to add in, and this is what Peter does. The one that I underlined in that first column right here, okay? Peter says this, uh, let's skip down to the middle of the paragraph. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, that's the cross, check it out, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. One of the things Jesus was doing was being punished in your place so that you wouldn't have to be. Another of the things that he was doing was he was destroying the works of the devil. He was crushing the serpent's head. He, made a, he triumphed over him, making a public spectacle of him, triumphing over the cross, right, through the cross. But the third thing that what Peter is pointing out is what he was doing is he was showing you, live your life like I did. The cross is an example of everything we've been describing. 
that we go to the lowest place, the V-shaped gospel once again. We go to the lowest place from which God will exalt us to the highest place. The exaltation is God's job. The going down is our job. And he's saying the cross is not just how you were redeemed. It is to be henceforth the pattern of your life. Jesus' willingness to suffer unjustly gives you guys resources to suffer unjustly, which isn't any fun, but it is what you are called to. It says, to this you were called, suffering, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That's a really important passage for that whole concept, okay? All right, Uh, last thing, I want you to see this. This is, a little bit, this is a little bit off the main argument. But look at that very bottom of, the, of that page. Peter is doing something here that's really helpful and important if you want to understand the relationship between Israel as a nation and the church as a community. Namely this, all the promises made to Israel are now available to you who don't have a drop of Jewish blood in you. And this is crazy. It is not to say that we have replaced Israel but rather we have joined Israel. You have been grafted in. And we could, make a, we could spend a lot of time unpacking this. I'm just giving you a couple of Peter's examples. What he keeps doing, and it's really pretty stunning, is he takes promises that were made without any question or ambiguity to the nation of Israel, and then he says to a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, it's all for you. You have been, if you are in Christ, you are what, what Paul would say in Romans is that you are, a, you are grafted. So Israel is pictured as an olive tree and some of the branches have been broken off through unbelief. And then you, Scandinavian, African, Australians, get like grafted onto the tree. And now you share in the nourishing sap. You are part of it. So what he's saying here, things like this. I'll just pick one. This is maybe, I'll just pick one for the sake of time. You can look them all up if you want. Exodus 19 what would Exodus 19 be? Can you place that in the Old Testament? Yes. Where is that? Exodus 19. Chapter before, the Chapter before the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19 is like Ten Commandments Eve, okay? It's like right before the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 19 it says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The condition is, if you obey me fully, Israel, then you will be these three things. Peter has the audacity to say to a bunch of Gentiles, you are, no condition is mentioned, you are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. What he is saying is that thing that was a conditional promise made to Israel is is now a conditioned met offer to you Gentiles. The obedience is not mentioned here because the obedience has been accomplished by Christ. And if you are in Christ, his obedience is your obedience. And you are what Israel was offered to be, but of course was unable to be. If you obey me fully, you be these three things. He says to Israel, he says to the church, you are these three things. Okay? This phenomenon shows up repeatedly in Peter. He's very interested in pointing out to a Gentile, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, probably majority Gentile, to this community It's all for you. All the promises made to Israel were accomplished by Christ and given to you as a gift received by faith, right? So to you weirdos, you freaks, living in the midst of suffering, 
Grateful for all that he's done, hopeful for what he will do. The call is just stay in it. Be endlessly truthful, endlessly gracious. Remain in the suffering. Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed when Christ comes back. And it's all going to be fine. But right now, it's going to be hard. But you have all the resources you need to be this unique, strange freaks in this broken world. That's, that's First Peter. Good enough? Okay. All for now. We'll do Matthew next week. 